You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. In James chapter 1, verses 9 to 11 tonight, and we'll be looking at the paradox of the poor and the rich. Tonight we'll mark our third foray into the immensely practical book of James, a book that has been nicknamed by many the Proverbs of the New Testament. And the reason for this name is immediately clear. James is deeply concerned to pass on godly wisdom to these believers who are struggling immensely because of their Christian faith. The book of Proverbs was written in the Old Testament. If you know who wrote the book, it was Solomon. Solomon is well known for being the wisest man who ever lived. He was the king. He was very wealthy also. And it seems like when you read the book of Proverbs, you're reading about a man who is wise, passionately trying to pass on the wisdom that he has gained from God to his son. That's what the book of Proverbs is, right? And if you read the book, it doesn't just seem like he's writing to say like, well, here's a truth and here's a truth and here's a truth. He's saying, listen to these truths, Get a hold of these truths. Apply them to your life. Right? There's the desire to make this practical all over the book of Proverbs. And there is a desire for James to make this practical for those people he's writing to as well. He writes almost as if he's a father writing to his children saying, this is what you need to know. This is the wisdom, the eternal perspective that you must have in this life if you're going to get through. Because trials are going to come. Difficulties are going to come. It's not going to be easy. And when those times come, what are you going to trust in? What are you going to turn to? What is your perspective going to be? And so James writes to give us an eternal perspective. Thus far, James has focused his attention on those believers who are walking through the fire, through the trials of their faith. And he provides for us a paradox that trials of various kinds should be counted as joy, should be a reason for us to rejoice. As soon as we read this, we're forced to stop, look at the text again, and say, is that what he really said? Did I I read that wrong? Am Am I mixing some words up? Because it doesn't make any sense to us that trials are a reason for joy. How is that possible? But what he does by phrasing it that way is he makes us think. He reminds us that God has a purpose in their trials, that there are actually two ways of looking at the trials in your life. There is the human perspective, which is, I want to avoid suffering. I want to be comfortable. I want my life right now to be in the best circumstance possible. But there is also a godly perspective, a biblical perspective, where we see our trials as a way for God to do a work in us that he cannot do otherwise. That through the difficulty of our life, he is making us more and more into the image of his son. And that is more precious than anything else that we can imagine. And that is worth the pain that we will endure. What they really need, what the believers he's writing to really need, is they need wisdom. And so he goes on and he says, if you lack wisdom, if you don't see that your trials this way, in fact, if you lack wisdom in all areas of your life, then go to God, pray, ask him, because he will give any person who asks for wisdom in faith freely. I mean, it's there for the taking. We must come to God in faith. Do you remember what it means to have faith in this this regard? 
It means when God said something that doesn't make sense to you, you trust it because you trust his character. That's what faith is. If you come to God and say, God, if you can make this, if you can reason this out to me, if you can make every situation in my life make sense, then when you've proved it to me, I'll trust you. That's not faith. That's just, the, this is logic. How everything ought to work. But faith is coming to God and saying, God, I might not understand. God, I'm, my eyes might be closed at this point. I might not get what you're doing, but I trust you. That's faith. And so he says, if you come to God in faith, he will give you the wisdom that you need in your circumstance. So to summarize, James says that the trials are in fact a cause for joy. And if you don't see it that way, then ask God for wisdom. And if you ask in faith, he will give you wisdom. Wisdom to help you see the benefit of the trial is greater than the pain you're going through. Um, And this is godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is learning to see the world through the eyes of God. It's learning to view the world with an eternal perspective. So as we look tonight at James 1, verses 9 to 11, we will notice again James' affinity for paradoxes. A paradox is a statement that initially seems to be false or contradictory, but may in fact be true. Jesus used paradoxes often in his teachings. If you lose your, if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's a paradox. It doesn't make any sense, initially. The first shall be last and the last first. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are, the, are those who, who go through trouble. It doesn't make, doesn't make sense. Why are they blessed? It, it, it strikes us as odd. And I think when we view paradoxes and what they do with us, there is some shock value to a paradox. As soon as you read it, you stop and say, what? What does that mean? Um, there's a, a theologian and author named G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote in the early 20th century, primarily. And he was called the prince of paradoxes. He was just known for looking at society, looking at politics, looking at life, and looking at theology and seeing paradoxes all over it. And so he was great at at pointing those out. And what he said is, life is full of paradoxes. It is full of those apparent contradictions, those incongruous juxtapositions that point to deeper truth. He said that a paradox is truth standing on its head to gain attention. And, and you think about that for a second. It, it, I mean, you take a truth, and it, when you, as soon as you put it in a, the, the version of a paradox, then all of a sudden you stop, and you notice it because it's truth that's standing on its head, and it's doing that not just to stand on its head, it's doing that to gain attention. So you'll look at it, so you'll think about it, so you'll ponder it. And so tonight, James gives us two paradoxes, and he does that because he wants us to stop and think. What is he talking about? How are these things true when they seem to be false? What is it for us to learn about? Why is James using a paradox so that we will stop and think? And so, are you ready to see what James wants us to think about tonight? Because for me, it felt a little bit like a punch to the nose. You get punched in the nose. You know what that's like, right? I mean, it doesn't matter who hit you or what happened. All of a sudden, you just find yourself angry because nobody likes to hit the nose. It just, your eyes water up and you, you feel like you're going to cry, but you don't want to cry because you're tough and you can't cry. And there's just this desire to lash out against what just happened to you. That felt a little bit like a punch in the nose. This does. Okay? 
So let's read. We'll read it through, and then we'll go back and walk through the passage verse by verse. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower thereof falleth. And the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So shall the rich man fade away in his ways. At the end of the day, we have two men here. One walks away with the crown of life. The other burns up, perishes, and fades away. I think we'd all agree that we want to be signed up for the crown of life. But look what he expects of us. Verse 9. Let the brother of low degree rejoice and that he is exalted. The idea of low degree here is the lowly, the depressed, the cast down, the base, the humiliated. There's nothing good intrinsically about being a person of low degree. None of us would aspire to that. These are those who are poor, who society looks at and is just glad they're not them. They're the base. They're the poor. And yet he says, let the brother of low degree rejoice that he is exalted. Back in James's day, there wasn't much middle class. It was basically you were either very rich or very poor. Um, nowadays, especially in North America, we think of poor in very different terms than James would have thought of them, right? For us, you may be poor, you may have no money in your bank account, you may have debt, you, I mean, you can be just in a, in a really tough situation. You might be uneducated, you might have no skills, you might have no real way of making money for yourself, and yet you still have all the clothes you need, all the food you need, a, a roof over your head, you, I mean, you probably have satellite TV. That, this is our version of poor in North America. But back then, they, there was no type of societal safety net that was you know, there for you in case you needed it. Back then, if you were poor, you had nothing. And you had to rely on the charity of those around you who were probably also very poor in order to help you get through the night, get through the day, have enough food to eat. Being poor here, the point I'm trying to make is being poor... It's not just like, oh yeah, you're, you're some of the less fortunate in North America. No, this is, this is those people who struggle to find a job, and in that job, they're going to make a dollar a day. This is the real poor. This is those who are hungry, who are losing, who have lost or losing everything. It's a real trial. We talked about trials a little bit earlier in the book of James already here. We're talking about going through trials and testings and difficulties. Can you imagine going through this testing and difficulty and trial for your life? Every day you wake up and you're poor, you don't have any money, you have no idea how you're going to eat that day. There's a lot of people around the world that live that way. And so he says, let the poor rejoice, the lowly, the humiliated in society. Let them rejoice. The word rejoice here is not just the word for happiness and joy. This, is, this word literally means to boast or to take pride in. So let the, the poor take pride in the fact, be boastful of the fact that they're, they're high, that they've been exalted. What is, what is this talking about, James? I mean, none of it makes any sense until you realize 
that James is not referring to their exaltation here today. James is talking about the wealth that they have that is it's beyond what we experience in this life, that is eternal wealth. That it, this is being a joint heir with Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says, And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So here he says, there are poor, lowly people who can rejoice because they're exalted. And you know what the key word in all of this is? Why it's possible? Because he says, let the brother. He's talking about a child of God. He's talking about a brother or sister in Christ. And in that situation, when you have absolutely nothing and everybody else sees you and, and is so glad they're not you, he's saying that you in that state can rejoice because you're highly exalted. Because what you have is so much more valuable than the wealth that everybody else is talking about. That you have a spot in the kingdom of God, that you're a prince or a princess of the, of the king of heaven. That's true. That's something to rejoice in. So he says the, the poor can rejoice. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says something similar. It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have a living hope. We have a resurrection to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's what the poor have. They have a living hope, a resurrection, an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and will not fade away, that it is reserved in heaven for you. And he goes on to say that it's kept. You are kept there by the power of God. Brother or sister of low degree, rejoice because you are not lowly in the sight of God. You can hold your head up high because to God, you are beyond valuable. You are so valuable that God sent his son to shed his blood for you. The riches you possess cannot be stolen, they cannot be corrupted, and they will last forever. Now James turns his attention to another group. And my guess is that most of us in this room fall ourselves, find ourselves in the second group. He says, but the rich in that he is made low. Now, oftentimes people will look at these two verses side by side and they'll say, well, obviously the poor is the Christian and the rich is the unbeliever. That's not, that's not how this is written. That's not what James is saying here. He is actually speaking here about the rich brother. So let the brother of low degree rejoice in the exalted, but the rich, and it's the same idea, the rich brother, okay, in that he is made low. So first, if you can wrap your head around the idea of the poor and the lowly being exalted, if you can get there, then James seems to throw a wrench in all of it and says, well, now the rich have a reason to rejoice. What's the reason that the rejoice, that the rich can rejoice? Well, that they're made low, what? Why? What's going on here, James? It doesn't seem to make sense. It's a paradox, and so we must think about it. Let the rich brother rejoice or boast in the fact that he is made low. Remember, James is giving us God's perspective of wealth. Do you know what the first words of Jesus when he started his ministry? Do you know what the first words of Jesus recorded in Scripture that happened 
immediately after his baptism and after his temptation, what did he say? He said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. It sounds to me what Jesus is saying here is that he has come to preach the gospel to the lowly. He has come to bring the gospel to the poor, to those who are based, to those who are humiliated in society. And so why is it that now James says that the rich can be rejoicing because they have been made low? It's because what's happened when a rich person comes to Christ is they must give up all of those things that they've previously clung to. All of those things that that rich people tend to seek and tend to take security in and tend to look to for their pleasure and for their comfort and for their encouragement. When we struggle, what do we do? We go on Amazon, we buy something. It's not good. It's what rich people often do. What he's saying is, when you come to Christ, you come right next to that person who is lowly. You must. You must come to the cross as a sinner who is poor and blind and wretched and naked. Right? You must come to the cross like John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So what is he saying that you can rejoice in? You can rejoice in the fact that you have been made low. That you've been brought to a place where you clearly see that your riches can't save you. You clearly see that all that you have, all of that stuff that you've accumulated, is temporary. It's temporal. That It means nothing with an eternal perspective in mind. And so, brother or sister in Christ, if you have riches tonight, and my guess is you do, don't glory in them. Don't look to them for comfort, for security, for strength, for purpose, um, for, for joy, for pleasure. Those things will fade. They will fail you. It's just not what it's about. If we're being wise tonight, then when we have wealth, we see it for what it is. It's something that was given to us by God. We are stewards of it. It's to be used for his kingdom, but it is completely temporary. That It, it can never fulfill. And so we look to riches, and when we see them the right way, and we keep ourselves there at the foot of the cross where we've been made low, we have reason to rejoice. Paradox number one, the poor are exalted. Paradox number two, the rich have been made low. And both of these groups can rejoice in those two statements. I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. I think that the way that James says this, it really makes us think. He goes on in verse 10, and he gives us a a little bit of an example of what he's talking about. So verse 10 continues. Why should the rich rejoice in that he is made low? He says, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace and the fashion of it perishes, so shall the rich man fade in his ways. See, when the rich man comes to a point where he sees his riches this way, then he can rejoice. When he sees 
that as a flower of the grass, he, meaning all of his stuff, everything that he's accumulated, everything that others see him by, that all of that will pass away, then he's a lot better off. James here is giving this example of these flowers. And in the Middle East, there was beautiful flowers. I couldn't pronounce their names, so I just decided not to try. But there's these beautiful flowers that they have that grow, grow over the countryside, and everybody sees them. And when you look at them, there, there's just this, like, they, they look so delicate. I actually pulled up pictures of them on, on Google, and they're beautiful flowers, but very delicate looking. And what happens is these flowers will come up with the grass, and you'll look over them, you see these wildflowers, these fields that are just gorgeous, and you might tend to think, man, that's just so beautiful. That, those flowers, they must feel so good about themselves because they're gorgeous. The beauty is incredible. And, and then what happens is, in the Middle East, their sun is a lot hotter than our sun. Yeah, I know it's the same sun. But we, we experience a few days a year where the sun goes up and it's just scorching, scorching heat. Well, the sun goes up, and from the morning until the night, it, it shines down on those flowers. And those flowers, there's nothing they can do. They very, very quickly, within a matter of days, can go from the height of their beauty to being withered up. And, and what they're used for is they take that grass and the flowers with it, and they start fires with it. It's that dried up. You just go and start fire in a matter of days. And he paints this picture for them to say, this is what happens with the rich. This is what the rich are like. They're beautiful in their day. There's this grace that is gorgeous when you look at them. They've got so much stuff. They, they're able to do their hair nicely, and their clothes are beautiful, and everything they touch is beautiful, and they sleep in beautiful places, and everything about them is gorgeous, and yet the sun comes up, and all of a sudden, everything they have is burned up. It's gone. It fades away. It doesn't last. And so when a rich man sees himself properly... And he gets to the point where he keeps going to that place where he's been made low. He keeps going back to the foot of the cross. He keeps seeing himself through God's eyes. Then he has great reason to rejoice. I think what we get here is we get a picture of what real wealth is from God's perspective. Real wealth is not having lots of stuff. Real wealth is having a very clear picture of who you are in Christ. And when you're poor and you see yourself in Christ, you realize the riches that you have. And when you're rich and you see yourself in Christ, you realize that you did nothing to get there and that none of your riches will help and that those things won't last. And so you rejoice because you're in Christ. And that's it. That's all we have. All of us, poor or rich, in Christ, we can rejoice. In this letter, James repeatedly calls the rich to see themselves as God does. He does it here in chapter 1. He will do it again in chapter 2, in chapter 4, and in chapter 5. More than any other book, it seems James is directly speaking to these rich believers. I don't know if it's because James is writing early on. It's only been 15 years since Christ died. And so maybe at this point there are still Christians, more Christians who have wealth. But for some reason, James focuses a lot of attention on his letter on the rich. And, And throughout the whole thing, he is warning us. Don't trust in your riches. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't take advantage of your circumstances that you find yourself in. Don't take advantage of others because of the circumstance you're in. Don't let yourself be distracted from what is truly valuable. And so James here uses two paradoxes to encourage us to think. So let's 
think along with James. We should think, number one, about the value of temporal things when compared to eternal things. I think that's what James wants us to do tonight. Think about the value of temporal things when compared to the value of eternal things. Temporal things are temporary. They don't last. It's amazing how much Jesus, James, sounds like his big brother Jesus here. It's almost like, I mean, when you read the book of James, you, you hear it just echoing constantly the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 to 7, almost everything that Jesus says in Matthew 5 to 7 is echoed somewhere in the book of James. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart may be also. His words to us there, and, and James' words to us there, are poignant because they're, they're so relevant. I, they're a punch in the nose. They're a reminder. I mean, it's not, sometimes it, it's not fun for us who, who have a habit um, of placing some kind of trust in our wealth. I know that none of us would sit here tonight and say that we do, right? We're not going to stand up and say, yeah, no, I'm, I find security in my wealth. But deep down inside, I think we've all felt a little bit of that. I think that the truth, if the truth were told, all of us um, who have things and enjoy those things, and sometimes to a point that we shouldn't. Sometimes we put too much trust in our riches. Sometimes we, we find that too many of our decisions are being made based on the bottom line. What is it going to cost? What am I going to get? How is this going to profit me? We, we live in a society where everybody is constantly shouting this message to us, right? Your worth, your value, your enjoyment of life is based on how much you have. And it's really hard for us to separate ourselves entirely from that. When everything we hear all the time is telling us opposite, right? And so James here is giving us this, this poignant reminder. Don't think that way. Don't let yourself be lured in, sucked in by the culture. It says, don't boast in your riches. Boast in your humiliation. Boast in that you've been made low that you are just a lowly sinner saved by the grace of God. What he's saying here is not that riches are evil. What he's saying here is that they're not worth boasting in at all. We should boast in our position in Christ. And what's amazing is when we look to Christ, we see the exact same attitude. In Philippians chapter 2, Verse 4, Paul writes, Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things also of others. So already he's setting us up for this idea that like, guys, your stuff is not the most important thing. What you have, don't think so much about that stuff. He goes on, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men. So we stop here and we say, Wait, James, are you saying that I should consider myself the same as the poorest of the poor that are believers in Christ? Absolutely. Are you saying that I should be willing to give up all of my stuff if it's for the benefit of, of Christ, if, it, if it's what I've called to do? Yes, absolutely. Can I tell you our example 
Our example is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe who owns all things that ever existed, who decided to step out of his throne in heaven, down to earth, and to take on the form of a servant. But not just a servant, a servant who's going to be born in a, in a manger, in a feeding trough, and eventually be crucified naked in front of sinners. I mean, this is, this is our example. So let this mind be in you, the same that was in Christ Jesus. The same way that he considered others more important than himself. Think that way. Don't focus on what you have. Don't focus on your stuff. Number two, I think James wants us to think about the danger of riches. So we should think about the value of temporal things when compared to eternal things, right? So think about what's more valuable. Obviously, eternal things are more valuable. And and consider the danger of riches. Christ warns us often about the danger of riches. When we look at scripture, often we find that riches are are seen less as a blessing and more as a stumbling block to spiritual sight. This should be a scary thing for us. If, If in scripture, more often, riches are a stumbling block than a blessing. We need to make sure we're not stumbling on this stumbling block, right? And so consider the danger. In the parable of the sower and the soils, um, Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse 18, these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. So those that are thorns, right? They hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, And the lust of other things entering in choke the word and it has become unfruitful. The danger is that all of this stuff becomes more important than what's actually important. And so we must make sure that our attitude as Christians is, I am going to put what is actually eternally important as the the priority in my life. I'm going to see my riches through God's perspective. Think about the danger. Wealth is considered a spiritual hurdle that must be overcome, not a spiritual blessing. Have the right perspective on your wealth. Rather than viewing our wealth from the prevalent social and economical perspective of our day, which is that wealth is always good and should be celebrated and pursued, we should view wealth from a theological and biblical perspective. We are stewards. That's it. And what we have is for him. So think about the danger of riches. And finally, and I don't want this to be all like a bad news kind of message. It kind of seems like it is. But, but this is actually, in, in reality, all of this is good news. Because he, at no point does he say that there is no joy in riches and that riches are, are evil in and of themselves. Right? Riches, wealth, is amoral. It's not evil by itself. What he's actually saying is there's something that's so much greater, so much more beneficial than riches that rather than focusing any of your attention on those things that perish and don't matter, focus your attention on what is truly important and rejoice in that. For the rich person, rejoice in Christ. For the poor person, rejoice in Christ. For the rich, it means you come down and you see yourself as Christ sees you. For the poor, you see yourself as Christ sees you, as a child of the king. In both circumstances, we rejoice in Christ. And so the final point is glory in the reality of an eternal inheritance. We so often think about what we have today. And we so rarely think about what we have for eternity. Do you know that that thinking of heaven 
is not discouraged in the Bible. It's actually encouraged. I think sometimes we think like, oh no, if, I, if all I do is think about heaven, I, you know, I, I'm being selfish or something like that. I don't know what it is. Just don't do it, right? You don't often think about heaven. We don't, we don't often purposefully place our treasure there. Yet, we're called to often. Um, this is to be the focus of both the poor and the rich. No matter if you're a brother or sister in Christ, you should be focusing on that eternal inheritance. We should find our wealth, our purpose, our value in our position in Christ. We just sang a song. It was written in the 6th century by the Irish poet Dalen. And in the third verse, he says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. How amazing would it be if this was, was our true prayer? I don't care about riches. I don't care about praise. My inheritance, what I value most, what I seek, it's you, Christ. It's, it's you. It's not others. It's not stuff. It's you. Can I be honest with you? Um, this is a good text for me. This is a reminder of what my life is to be about. I can think of a lot of good ways to make money. I have some people around me. My, I have uncles and aunts who have been very successful in making money. And I think, I, I naturally think about um, good ways to make money. And I, I need to be reminded, I need to be reminded that it's not about that. It's not about that at all. Now, I'm, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I'm not like seeking wealth all the time, but just I got to make sure that, that what I have and anything I'm pursuing is ultimately for the cause of Christ. I got to make sure that I'm not enjoying those good things that, 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 I, that I have on this life, right? Um, so Solomon pursues wisdom and God gives him riches, which is telling us that riches are not evil. But as soon as Solomon seems to, to seek his joy in those riches, everything fails. His whole life fails. And at the end of the day, he comes to, well, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. If we could, if we could just stay in the place where our, our riches are something to be in, enjoyed at times, but they're not something to dwell on, they're not something to, to, to pursue at the cost of other things. Right? When, when you go to school, you make decisions on what you're going to go to school for. Are you thinking... Oh, man, I'm going to go to school so I can make lots of money. I feel like, like all of us have these small decisions that we make in our life all the time. If we would just think eternally about, about money. Um, I was in the, the grocery store yesterday. There was a lady in front of me. It was actually Costco. And there was a lady in front of me and her card was expired. And so she was arguing about whether or not, um, whether or not she should be able to still buy things even though she didn't have a valid Costco membership. And apparently this was her third time that this had happened, but I didn't know that when And the truth is, I had the thought immediately, I should just, I should just get it for her, like, not a big deal. But then I stopped, because I thought, that's 20 bucks. 20 bucks in my pocket right now, it would be in her pocket. Um, it would actually be in the form of a big cake she was trying to buy. And 
And so I, I, I waited. And then they got like this manager over there. And finally, it was getting like heated. And, I, and finally, I was like, hey, I'll get it. But I felt like, why did I wait? Why was there even that pause? Now, ultimately, I got to, to talk to her a little bit after. And it was, it was, it was good. It was something that, that God used. But I, it's just so funny that, that for a moment, that $20 seems so important that I knew what I should do immediately. And I just didn't do it immediately. It took, it took a manager coming over to be like, hey, Dan, wake up. This is not going away. Right? And, and the truth is, if that lady at the counter would have said, sure, go for it. Um, we'll let you pay. Then I would have missed that opportunity. All I'm saying is, we have money. Why do we care so much about it? Let's, let's use what we have for the cause of Christ. It's not evil in and of itself. But it's evil when we're pursuing that. When we're valuing that above our relationship with Christ. James wants us to think. He wants us to change our perspective. And I think in the words that James says in James chapter 1 here tonight, there's something for all of us to think differently about. Changing our perspective will lead to us changing our priorities. And so be prepared for that. If we leave tonight and say, God, I I really do want to pursue you, I really want to rejoice in that I've been made low. This is not something that's going to happen just magically because you've heard it. It's something you're going to have to purposefully do. But if you do that, change your perspective. You make your perspective God's perspective on your wealth. It's going to lead to changing your priorities. It might lead to you giving money where you didn't before. It might lead you to helping people. It might lead you to saying no to jobs because there are things that you need to do that are more important. But it it should change us in some way. And so let's pray tonight that we would be people with an eternal perspective, that we would allow God to show us the way he sees our riches. We have rich so much, uh, we have riches. We have, we have riches that are so much greater in Christ. Right? We have treasure that, that is worth finding one thing and selling everything we have to pursue that. So as believers, we ought to do that.